Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Mr. Mark Cushman. Mark is a writer, producer, director, and a Saturn Award-winning author, which he won for his definitive three-volume book set, These Are the Voyages, a history of the original Star Trek TV series. He's also the author of an equally superb three-volume set of books titled Erwin Allen's Lost in Space, an authorized biography of a classic sci-fi series. Listeners to our show know that I consider these books my Lost in Space Bible, and if you don't own the set, you should, because the production information, behind-the-scenes stories, and interviews they contain are tremendous, and it's all written in an incredibly enjoyable style that Mark has become renowned for. Before we speak with him, I want to give a little background info on Mr. Cushman. Mark was born in San Diego, but grew up traveling the road with his father, making pit stops along the way up and down the West Coast, as well as Hawaii and New Mexico, before finally landing in L.A. His knack for writing became apparent early on, and he wound up working for 30 years in TV and film. His TV writing assignments include Star Trek The Next Generation and Diagnosis Murder, among many others. He also has numerous other TV and film screen credits as producer, director, and showrunner. In addition to his books on Star Trek The Original Series and Lost in Space, Mark has written books on the groundbreaking 1960s show I Spy, Long Distance Voyagers, The Story of the Moody Blues, Erwin Allen's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea Volume 1, and These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s Volume 1. As always, we will link to Mark's bookshop in our show notes. When we last spoke with Mark over a year ago, we talked at length about his Lost in Space books, concentrating on how Irwin Allen managed to bring this groundbreaking series to network TV and how the show evolved during the first season. This time, I wanted to get Mark's take on how Allen responded to the challenges of the 1966-67 season on Lost in Space and his other TV properties. I also want to explore Mark's view on Erwin Allen versus Gene Roddenberry. This should be fun. So sit back and enjoy this fascinating and freewheeling interview with author Mark Cushman. Hey, Mr. Mark Cushman, sir. Welcome. It's great to have you back on Alpha Control. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. How long has it been? About a year? It has been over a year. And I got to tell you, since we last spoke, I think it was last April, 
my copies of your Lost in Space books are quite a bit more dog-eared than they were even then. <laughs> so I may have to go back and get another copy. Of course, uh, you're also on Kindle with these books, uh, too. So I don't know how your sales do, you know, analog versus digital, but that, that's kind of nice to be in both worlds, I guess. Well, it's news to me that they're on Kindle, and I believe you. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's a problem putting books like this on Kindle because uh, my books are usually, what, 600 pages long, each volume, and they're filled with hundreds and hundreds of high-resolution images and captions. And when you put all those moving parts into a Kindle machine, they kind of come out like a milkshake. So I, I know that um, my publisher is sometimes tries a Kindle version, and if it turns out okay, they keep it. If not, they pull it. So if there's a choice, great. But I'm, I'm one of those guys who likes to hold the book in my hand and thump it. Oh, I'm with <laughs> you. Think, I'm with yeah. you. I'm like Samuel Cogley in uh, The Court Martial. Yeah. I like my old books, you know. But, you know, your books are so big, though, I got to tell you, they're, they're like uh, New York City phone books, each one of these volumes. And I take them on my trips with me. So sometimes it's nice to do the Kindle because it just takes up the size of your iPad or whatever. But Well, then you, then you must know they are on Kindle. Well, good. They, good they to are. hear it. They are. We've been very busy on our podcast. We're just about done reviewing season one of Lost in Space, and we're going to be turning to season two shortly. But I guess you've been busy as well since we last spoke. You've had another couple books come out, haven't you? Yeah, I'm always busy because uh, I love what I do, and, and I get up and I can't wait to write and research. Research is actually more fun than the writing. Uh, I've done... Uh, a book on the Moody Blues. I believe that came out after The Last Lost in Space. Yes, it did. Uh, I found out nobody had done a biography on the Moody Blues. Wow. And they were coming up on their 50th anniversary. Uh, they were touring America, playing the entire uh, Days of Future Past album, which was uh, had its 50th anniversary last Christmas, and um, uh, Nights in White Sad and all that. And they were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the end of the tour. And I found out about this about a year before, and I was looking for a book on the Moody Blues on Amazon, and there wasn't one. There were a couple self-published things out there that, you know, somebody interpreting their lyric and things like that. I thought, my God, nobody's written a biography on these guys. They invented the concept album and symphonic rock and all that stuff and had done so much good music. And so I got a hold of some of the Moody Blues and I did a ton of research and put out this biography called Long Distance Voyagers, The Story of the Moody Blues. There right. you go. And it's about the size of a New York phone book because what a rich history they had. And uh, I hope my books are more interesting than the um, than the New York phone book. But oh, uh, <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> and then I then I did uh, I got back onto the Star Trek track because I had done a three book set on the original Star Trek, one for each of the broadcast seasons, with all the memos and all the history of Star Trek and on getting rid of all the folklore that was on the internet and bringing the true story out and interviewed everybody, starting with Gene Roddenberry back before he passed away. And I had always planned to continue on with that, and uh, so I have a two-book set. The first one just came out, and the second one will be out by Christmas, and it um, is about the 1970s, which is really the decade that Star Trek, first of all, came back from death. Right. And it came back stronger than ever and became this amazing force in its own right. And so it covers the animated series, the first motion picture, the coming of the conventions, the boom in syndication, the merchandising like nobody had ever seen before, and the fan following that all these, uh, as I was researching all these uh, articles and stories from the time uh, that people would, who would go to the conventions and they kept comparing it to Beatlemania. And so it's a really interesting 10-year period in the history of Star Trek seeing it resurrected from death and becoming this living entity that's going to outlive all of us. Amazing. So that's what I did after Lost in Space. 
Right. And then you also, I think this was just about to publish when when we talked last year, was your first volume of The Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea books. Right. Uh, yeah. Kevin Burns, uh, who is the shepherd of Irwin Allen's properties, he uh, gave me permission, authorized the Lost in Space books, and gave me access to all of Irwin Allen's private papers and the show files and all that stuff. Did the same thing for, for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And so we put out, uh, it's going to be a two-volume set. Uh, the first one is out. It came out late last year, I believe, and um, covers the movie, uh, the pilot, the first season, the black and white stuff, and all that, plus Irwin Allen's early story. You find yeah. out who he is and where he came from, which I also kind of do in the first Lost in Space book. Uh, and then we, uh, the, the second volume, which will be out for Christmas, it's written. It just has to be edited, and we have to pop in all these pictures Kevin gave us, which are uh, might, well, maybe five hundred. Uh, it covers the uh, the three colored uh, seasons, uh, color episodes. So um, wraps up that story. Wonderful. And we're hoping to get David Hedison to do the forward. Okay. He said he would. So we we just got to get him kind of push him along and get him to do a forward for us. Well, we're recording on the twentieth of May, twenty nineteen, and I just noticed this morning I got something in my Facebook feed that today is uh, David Hedison's. 92nd birthday. So that's kind of a and coincidence. And he is a young 92. He's like William Shatner. These two guys are in their 90s now, and you would never know it meeting them. I mean, they got all their marbles, and they got uh, uh, Shatner has so much energy. He's still out there riding horses and doing mm-hmm. 100 different projects at once. It's just remarkable. David is, is kind of enjoying his retirement, uh, but uh, he's, he's sharp, and he's, he's a wonderful gentleman and uh, has, has memories of the whole thing. And so we're hoping that uh, we'll get a, a good forward out of him for the volume two. Oh, we, did, we did really good with Lost in Space. We had uh, what was it? Billy Mooney did the forward for volume one, Angela Cartwright volume two, and then we got Marta Kristen and Mark Goddard each to write a forward for volume three. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I really enjoyed the forward to the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I guess it's Mark Phillips did that forward for this first volume of the Voyage yes. to the Bottom of the Sea. Very, very heartfelt and, and very interesting. I should mention them. Yeah, Mark Phillips, you know, he wrote for Starlog. And he was kind of the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea guy. He would do the interviews back then. So for a lot of the people that I couldn't interview because they're not with us, now, uh, Mark was just so helpful in contributing a lot of um, archival interviews that he did and uh, read the books and gave me notes and, and everything. So, and I had the same fortune with Lost in Space with Mike Clark, mm-hmm. who also was a Starlog writer, and he was kind of the Lost in Space guy at Starlog. And so he, uh, he sat in and helped us with the Lost in Space books, read them, gave notes. And I was very fortunate with the new Star Trek ones on the 1970s. Dorothy Fontana yeah. wrote the foreword, and that's DC Fontana, who was their story editor. Right. I think one of their best writers. And she read the entire book and gave me notes on every chapter, and which was a bonus from all these people because like, Dorothy was hired to write a foreword. And she said, well, before I write the foreword, I need to read the book. So I started feeding her chapters one at a time, and she would send back notes on each chapter. And it was like, this is great. (laughs) The person who was there, you know, saying, yes, yes, this is right, this is right, but you got this little thing wrong, or or, let me add something to this. And it just became a bonus on top of getting the foreword from her, which is a terrific foreword that she wrote. I've been very fortunate in that way. That is awesome. The new Star Trek book is one I don't have, but I'm getting it. I just got to carve out time to read all these books, Mark. You know I've read the Lost in Space ones cover to cover, and I use them as the Bible, as I say on our show, because they really are comprehensive. But I just have to say, I love 
the format of these books. And people ask me, how come the books are so big? Well, you have a chapter, for example, and this you do this with the Star Trek books and you do it with The Lost in Space and now The Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. You're giving us a chapter per episode in these right. classic sci-fi series with all the notes, the memos, the script revisions, quotes, interviews, a synopsis of the episode. I mean, it's very exciting to have this as a companion when you're watching the the Star Trek Blu-rays or the Lost in Space Blu-rays really are invaluable. So kudos. Yeah, you know, and, and I'll tell you, I, and I do that with the Moody Blues to a chapter on each one of their albums because I, I want to know the story behind all these events. And I look at an episode of a TV show as a big moment in that TV show's life. And, you know, I turn the TV show and you know, I make it a biography of a television show. And Moody Blues is a biography of a band. So when you're you're going through its life, each one of these episodes is a is a big deal uh, because it it influences the episodes that are going to follow. You know, you introduce characters, you introduce themes, you introduce things that you have to then carry on, and and especially with Lost in Space in that first season, you're seeing it starting off as a pretty dark film noir type show, Swiss Family Robinson in outer space, and Doctor Smith is such a dastardly person and and played pretty seriously he has his comical moments even in the first episode but he's a he's a force to be reckoned with and the robot is a pretty spooky cat too Mm. and the whole thing and then you see the network having kind of a negative reaction to it because they're getting letters from parents mothers usually saying our kids love the show they're hooked on the show they're going to throw a tantrum if they can't watch the show but they can't sleep. They're having nightmares. And so then CBS is putting pressure on Irwin Allen to get rid of Dr. Smith, get rid of the, the robot, to lighten the tone of the show a bit. And uh, Irwin Allen is kind of like, what am I going to do? I, I need this character. This, is, this character is the, and the, the robot being his henchman, they are the um, antagonist within the group. Right. We have these aliens who serve as an antagonist in various episodes, but uh, this is the guy within the center of the group who is the problem. He's the long John Silver in uh, Treasure Island and the whole thing, and we can't lose him. He's essential to the show, and so I have to find a way to keep him. And it was Jonathan Harris who actually started sneaking in the comedy. And a great story that I got from Jonathan was that Irwin came into his dressing room one day and stuck his finger in Jonathan's face, and he said, You! I know what you're doing. Do more. <laughs> and then he turned and walked out <laughs> because yeah. he realized at that moment that this could allow him to keep the character in the show. So then they started adding more comedy and as the show went along and so forth. So again, that's an example how each episode can influence the episodes that are going to follow. Yeah. And you see that in the first season of sneaking in some comedy, and then an episode or two later, there's going to be a little bit more and a little bit more as it starts evolving into something that CBS is going to allow to be on the air during the family hour. Exactly. And of course, as I mentioned, we're getting ready to start tackling season two for Lost in Space, which goes even farther down that road. I think I was mentioning to you earlier offline that I've recently been able to get enough bandwidth to start reading your These Are the Voyages on the original Star Trek series. I'm almost done with the uh, first book, and it's just as great (laughs) as Spock would say, fascinating. But it occurred to me, season two of Lost in Space is when it's also going to be facing, not directly in a time slot, but in a way, some competition, because 1966-67 is when Gene Roddenberry finally gets, uh, or NBC mm-hmm. finally gets Star Trek on. So now you're going to have two one-hour sci-fi non-anthology TV shows 
on TV at the same time. Very different yeah. shows. But it made me think about how interesting it is to consider Erwin Allen and Gene Ronberry. And if you'll allow me just to read a quotation from your preface that you wrote for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, you're talking sure. about which one of the three networks, ABC, CBS, or NBC, would be the first to launch a one-hour science fiction series set in the future with a recurring cast. And of course, you're talking in this book about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which was Erwin right. Allen's first foray into it. And then you said, a serious space show, be it inner or outer space, set with characters required in an established format, costumes, innovative sets. Surely only a madman or somebody on a mission would take on this kind of thing. There were only two creator-producers who dared the challenge, Erwin Allen and Gene Ronberry. They began their respective projects within months of one another. And it made me think how interesting and similar these two people are, but also how different. And I thought... You, you've you studied these two guys a lot, and I thought maybe it'd be an opportunity for us to maybe do a little compare and contrast if you're up for it. Sure, sure. It, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, you know, Roddenberry wanted to be a modern-day Jonathan Swift. And Jonathan Swift, for any of your listeners who may not know, was writing. He was a novelist uh, and, a, and a political writer back in England in the olden days. Back then, if you wrote something that the king didn't approve of, you know, they would bring you in and say, which hand did you use to write this? And they would chop the hand off. Mm. So uh, he created these other worlds, you know, by having um, Gulliver go, go out there and be a giant among these people. And he was actually making commentary on England and a lot of the class system that was in England and so forth at that time. But because he was staging it in another world, in a sense... Uh, nobody chopped his hands off. Right. And so Gene Roddenberry wanted to do that on television. And he had produced a series called The Lieutenant. Uh, and he'd been writing. He was a top writer on Half Gun Will Travel. He'd done a lot of cop shows and westerns and so forth, and then became a producer with The Lieutenant. And, uh, and was constantly at odds with NBC over the type of stories that he wanted to tell on the show about racism and things of that nature. When that show got canceled, not because of bad ratings, but because he had crossed the line with the network and told a story that they didn't want to have on, uh, and the ratings were kind of in the middle of where they needed to be so it could go either way, they decided to drop the show. It was like a hot potato, let's just drop it. So for his next show, he created Star Trek because he thought, if I can do it on other planets, I can talk about Vietnam. I can talk about racial strife in America. I can talk about sexual strife in America. I can talk about religion, all these subjects, overpopulation, you name it. And I can get away with it because it's not on Earth. It's out there. But anybody watching this is going to get the message. And so that's the tact that he used uh, and the path that he decided to go down. Irwin loved to be entertained. I mean, he, he was this poor kid in the Bronx who would go to the movies and he wanted to travel the world. He wanted to experience so many things, but he couldn't because his family didn't have any money. So he kind of would go and watch the Saturday morning serials with the cliffhangers and everything. Mm. And he was so excited watching that stuff as a kid. And he never really grew up. I mean, he became mm. the top producer in television. He had more series running simultaneously than Quinn Martin or anybody else. But he wanted to do stuff that could entertain people the way he was entertained and capture their imagination the way his imagination was captured when he saw Buck Rogers and, and Flash Gordon and, and all these, uh, these serials back in the 1930s and 40s uh, that were in the movie theaters. And so that's why he would do a cliffhanger at the end of each Lost in Space. First of all, he got that idea right from there. <laughs> and uh, he loved the classics. He loved Swiss Family Robinson. He loved uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. He loved the Time Machine. 
he loved 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I believe it was called, right. uh, Jules Byrne. Uh, and so he would take these stories that he had read uh, as a kid, and he would turn them into television shows. So, uh, you know, you get Time Machine that came out of, or Time Tunnel that came out of Time Machine. You get Lost in Space came out of Swiss Family Robinson. Voice of MC came out of 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea and so forth. Uh, Land of the Giants, uh, you know, he, he got that idea from Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and things of that nature and the incredible shrinking man. Mm. Uh, so, you know, he found ways to adapt these into a, a television property. So he was more entertainment-oriented. Roddenberry was more theme-oriented, wanting to tell the story. And I pitched to Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek The Next Generation and sold the uh, episode Sarak to him, the story for Sarak. Mm. You know, I, I pitched it to him, and I said, I want to do a story about Sarak being on the Enterprise, and he's going through senility, and he's the only one who can go out and take care of this mission because he created the treaty in the first place, so they have to pull him out of retirement and take him out there. But he's struggling with uh, senility at this point and trying to hide it because Vulcans are so proud and they don't want to be seen in that type of a way. And so Gene immediately liked the idea. And then he asked me something that very few producers would ever ask. He said, okay, but what's the theme? What do you want to say with this story? And he always did that. And I wow. saw that in all of his memos for all the episodes of Star Trek, that he would get the pitch, and then he would say, what's the theme? What are we saying with this one? And that was so important to him. And I said, well, you know, it's interesting. I listened to, uh, I was coming in today, and I heard a thing on the radio, uh, which actually I heard weeks earlier, which is what gave me the idea for the episode. But I said, I, I heard this thing on the radio, and uh, they did a survey uh, to find out what people's greatest fears were. And uh, of the top three, number three is death. So that means there's two things that most people are more afraid of than death. Mm. And do you want to take a guess at what the other two are? Well, could it be failure? I'm not sure. Yeah, number two is cancer. People are oh, more cancer. afraid of cancer than death because cancer is a slow, painful, ah. uh, terrible death. And number one is public humiliation. Okay, so kind of like that, yeah. And, and I said, so for a Vulcan, you know, nothing's more important to them than, than keeping up this front of I have my emotions in control and so forth. So when you're going through senility, that's a really terrible thing for a Vulcan. Doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to be around anybody going through that period of his life. And I said, but think about how hard it is for us as human beings to be going through senility, to be going through things that are affecting our minds. We know we're no longer as sharp as we used to be. And the embarrassment, especially for people who were overachievers in their life, and now they can't do it anymore right. and everything. And I said, so we're really talking about ourselves and using a Vulcan to kind of think about that stage in our lives. And he said, go, go, go home and write it. You know, mm. well, Irwin never asked those questions. You know, Irwin just say, "So, what's your story?" And they say, "Well, they're going to run into a cyclops, and he's uh, he's fifty feet tall, and he's going to throw boulders." And Irwin would say, "Great, go write it." Right. <laughs> you know? That's going to be fun. So he, Irwin, didn't like the theme to get in the way. Now, a lot of these Lost in Space episodes and the other shows he did have themes because you've got professional writers that are doing it, and they would sneak the themes in. But he wasn't looking to go to war against the networks. And a great case in point there is the fact that Gene Roddenberry, and the reason Star Trek only lasted three seasons, was that he was constantly fighting the network over every episode and what he wanted to do. And so the network kept moving the show to worse and worse time slots. And finally, they found a time slot Friday nights from 10 to 11 where it wasn't performing that well, and they were able to get rid of it. But in Irwin's case, he's on during the family hour. 
So he can't do the type of stories that Star Trek is doing. And he's not going to fight the networks. He's going to give them what they want. So all of his shows, if you look at the pilots, if you look at the pilot film for Voice Upon the Sea it's, it's, uh, and Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, uh, Land of the Giants, you see he directed those so, and co-wrote them. Uh, usually without credit. And so you see those things and you see the show that Irwin wanted to make. Now, if the show steered away from the pilot, it wasn't because he wanted to. It's because that was what the network was asking him to do. And unlike Gene Roddenberry, he gave the network what they wanted. So he played he played ball with the networks. Gene Roddenberry didn't. And that's why Voice of Sea lasted for four years. And that's why Lost in Space was renewed for a fourth season. And if you read the third book, you find out why that fourth season didn't happen because Irwin did shows that the networks liked to carry. In fact, when NBC tried to cancel Star Trek after its second year and they got over a million protest letters forcing them to give it a third season, when they decided they weren't going to put it on the schedule for uh, 1968 and 69, they called Irwin Allen and said, come do a science fiction show for us because they wanted to have a science fiction show on the schedule. ABC was doing great with Irwin's stuff. CBS was doing great with Irwin's stuff. And for them to do great, it means NBC was doing bad during those time periods. Right. So they wanted to have a science fiction show from Irwin Allen, and they were about to close the deal with him to put a show on when they all those letters pouring in and all the people marching on NBC and Burbank and Rockefeller Plaza. And so out of they had to pick up Star Trek for another year reluctantly because of it. So Irwin did not get a show on NBC at that time. But uh, everybody was coming to him because they knew that Irwin would give them a show that was what they wanted to show. And they weren't going to have to have fights with him on all these issues over story. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to read how different they were in dealing with the networks. Like you said, it was sort of like one wanted to be the entertainer and one wanted to be the teacher or the social mm-hmm. commentator in a sense, I guess. Who do you the think? The philosopher. The philosopher. The, exactly. Yeah. And Star Trek does have an overarching philosophy. It's definitely. Mm-hmm. Did, did the two men have significant influencers or role models that shaped their um, Absolutely. character? Absolutely. Well, with Roddenberry, it was Jonathan Swift, probably more than anybody else. But he also loved, uh, I can't think of the author's name, but he loved the book series on Horatio Hornblower, who was a, a captain in the British Navy back in the days of the old sailing ships and the British Empire. And so he really kind of borrowed from that. He, he just said, let's take Horatio Hornblower and make him into Captain Kirk. Let's take that ship that he serves on and turn it into the Enterprise. Let's take the ocean voyages of that ship and the islands that it visits uh, and the pirates that it deals with and all that stuff, and let's put that into outer space. So Gene kind of borrowed from, from that classic series of books to make Star Trek. Now, Irwin Allen, we've already talked about some of his inspirations with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and so forth. But mostly for Irwin, it was those Saturday morning serials. He loved those 30-minute serials with the cliffhangers. He was hooked. He couldn't wait to go back into the theater next week and see how Buck Rogers was going to get out of the jam that they ended the last episode with. And you see him doing that in Lost in Space uh, more than any other show. That was really the only one of his shows where he did the cliffhanger endings. But that was him. You know, Roddenberry grew up. Roddenberry grew up to be this wise old man, this philosopher who wanted to educate people. He wanted to use television as a tool to educate and science fiction as a means to tackle stories and subject matters that you couldn't do on a contemporary police show or or lawyer show or hospital show. Irwin Allen just wanted to stimulate people's imaginations. He wanted to entertain them, excite them, and get them to think beyond their lives and go on imaginative voyages into 
worlds and places that they would probably never visit. You know, and I'm, so both of them had very noble causes. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's room for both. I mean, I kind of compare it today. We have all the comic book movies, the popcorn movies, the Marvels and the DC movies, which are entertaining and escapism. And then on the other hand, you have serious sci-fi and movies like the Nolan uh, Interstellar film, or, you know, if you can go back to 2001, I think there's a place for, for both of those in this world. And Yeah. And, well, when uh, I saw Star Wars in 76, I saw it on the day it opened. And uh, so, of course, all my friends were waiting for reports. Sure. And, and they said, so what was it like? And I said, it's like a big budget loss in space. It's like <laughs> take loss in space and throw millions of dollars into one episode. And this is what Irwin Allen would have given us. And I, and I bet you any money, George Lucas was a big fan of, of loss in space. You know, I, I know they all like Star Trek, but I bet you any money, when you look at Steven Spielberg's stuff and George Lucas's stuff, they really... We'll work in some themes and some messages, but they're going for the the popcorn. They're going to entertain you and thrill you and put you on a roller coaster. And that comes right out of the the school of Irwin Allen. And Irwin Allen did it on the big screen with movies like The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. So and Swarm, you know. Yeah. But uh, uh, you know, if if he could have done, he wanted to do a big screen Lost in Space, and you see that in Book Three. After he, they decided not to do the fourth season due to money issues, uh, budget issues, and all that. Uh, he tried to bring it back a couple different occasions with the original cast on the big screen. So he would have been happy to have done a twenty million dollar Lost in Space episode. You know, he was into spectacle. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, talk to me a little bit about the archival material. Is, is it pretty similar, what you have for Irwin Allen versus for Gene Roddenberry, or are there any significant differences? It's, it's similar, but the difference is, is Roddenberry and his staff recorded everything. They they used dictaphones, and they would sit down with every draft of every script and uh, every problem on the set that they had to deal with, uh, special effects, you name it. Uh, and they would record these long memos at night, at the end of the day when they got home, that would get typed up the next morning and distributed to all the department heads. And so there's so much uh, recorded information on the making of Star Trek in, this, in the Star Trek show files and, and the Gene Roddenberry vault that it was just an overabundance of information. I mean, I, Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry, the two producers, they would do a 20-page memo on a 10-page story treatment. You know? I know. And, I, uh, it's incredible. When I'm reading your book, it's just amazing how much, yeah. how do they have time to do that? Plus all the, the script rewrites. Because they doing. did it at night. Uh, you know, they would, they would put in a long 12 hour day at the studio and then they would go home and pour a scotch and light a cigarette as everybody did back then. And, and they would start reading a script and they would have the dictaphone right there and they would read a page and they would turn it on and say, okay, this thing where Kirk's saying this, this doesn't sound like him. He wouldn't do this. This isn't right. And then they would turn it off and they would read the next page and turn it on and record. So they're just kind of doing these 20 page memos as they're reading through the script at mm -hmm. night after a long day, getting a little loose with a little alcohol and so sure. forth. Bob Justman, his humor would really kick in because he's getting kind of relaxed as he's reading these scripts and, and he could have been a stand-up comedian. I loved his memos. So I would take all these huge memos and I would take a paragraph here or a sentence there and I would feather them together so that it's like you're sitting in a room listening to a conversation between these guys on every episode they're making. And with Irwin, he did this in, in production meetings. He would have, uh, they were called method meetings. And every day they would come in there to his office at some point for an hour or two. And all of his chief staff officers, the head of the, 
the, the costumes, the head of the, the set decorator, his story editor, they would all sit around this table and they would hash out what they needed to do with this script and with this production that's going on this week and so forth. Well, none of that's being recorded. Right. So I didn't have as many memos, but there were quite a few. I mean, naturally, CBS is sending their, their broadcast sensor memos over to him, and there's correspondences between him and the network, and there's the production reports, and there's the budgets and everything else, and the Nielsen ratings. So I had all that material to put in here. So I didn't have to try to condense these huge memos into shorter ones. But the information is there. You get to see the thinking process that they're going through, the challenges that they're running up against, and so forth. Uh, it's just those Star Trek books could have been, my God, they could have been a thousand pages each, mm. easily. Uh, and it was, and it was tough taking a twenty-page memo. And there's so many juicy morsels within that memo, and having to say, well, I really only have space to use this sentence or that paragraph or whatever. Uh, that was the challenge for me with uh, Star Trek. It was a little easier with Irwin Allen because not all of it was put on paper. Right, right. Well, you and that, really that's get where a... I relied on the the interviews. You know, we had Al, um, his cousin Al, who worked G on the Gale. show. Al Gale. Al Gale. Uh, you know, he was in all those meetings and a couple others. So we have uh, extensive interviews with them to kind of give us a view of the inside. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this interview with author Mark Cushman as much as I am. Mark's not just an authority on the subject of classic sci-fi TV and film, he's also a fan, and that passion really shines through. He's got more to share about Lost in Space, Irwin Allen, and much more. So sit tight for the second part of our conversation with author Mark Cushman. You know, my favorite story, I interviewed the production manager of ABC that was working with him on uh, Voice of Mama C, who told me it was the network that said, we've got to have a monster in every episode because even though the ratings are great, every time you do a monster on Voice of Mama C, the ratings spike because people <laughs> see it in the coming attraction and more people watch. Right. So start giving us more monsters. And with CB with Lost in Space, you see them saying, quit scaring the kids. You can have the monsters, but don't make them as scary. Don't make Dr. Smith as bad as you are. So... Uh, but my favorite story is Joe D'Agosta, who was the casting director on Voice of Odyssey and Lost in Space, and the pilot for Time Tunnel, and he left right around that time and moved yeah. over to Star Trek. Wow. So I got to interview Joe for both, for both of those book series, and he's a great guy. And he told me uh, a story about Irwin Allen uh, that happened when he was working on Voyage and Lost in Space. Uh, he was also working for 20th Century Fox, so they had him casting a movie uh, remake of Stagecoach. And uh, Irwin's walking along the street, and he runs into Joe, and he says, uh, how are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm casting this Stagecoach thing. And of course, Irwin's thinking, well, wait a minute, you're supposed to be casting my shows. <laughs> And so they called Al in for the meeting in Irwin's big boardroom with that giant table. Joe walks in, and uh, and there's Irwin sitting there, and there's one of the directors, and there's a couple of Irwin's right-hand men, his henchmen, and they're all <laughs> waiting, and there's the head of the casting department at 20th Century Fox, and they're all in the room, and Joe comes in, and he sits down, and Irwin starts saying, uh, turns to Joe's boss, and he says, well, we have a problem with Joe. You know, he's not putting enough time into this. And they just start going down the list of the fact that Joe's not giving them enough of his time because he's being distracted with things like stagecoach. 
And Joe just sat there and listened, and he told me I felt like I was being set up. Mm. It was all prearranged, and it was an assassination and the whole thing. And so they finished it all, and then uh, they turned to Joe, and he said, so what do you have to say, Joe? And he got up, and he walked over to the window, and he kind of looked out at the studio. And he was a young man, and he wasn't in a position to be quitting a job or losing a job. He was just starting his career. Mm-hmm. And he walked over to that window, and he was, said he was just kind of grinding his teeth. And, and this rage was building up inside of him over what Irwin was doing. And he turned to Irwin and he walked over and he knew how Irwin liked to stick his finger in people's faces when he wanted to make a point. And he stuck his finger in Irwin's face and he said, you, just like Irwin would always do. He said, you, I'm in here at six in the morning and I stay until eight o'clock at night and I'm working on weekends. You call me to your house for meetings and I'm working for you constantly and I'm killing myself and I'm doing a great job for you. And you do this to me, the hell with you, you son of a bitch. And he turns and he walks out and he passes his boss and uh, and he says, I'm sorry. And he walks out of the room. And he said he went back to his office and he sat there and he thought, I just blew my entire career. Erwin mm. Allen is the most powerful producer in television. He has three series going right now. And, and I'm dead. I'm going to get fired and I'm never going to work for anybody again. I just blew it. The phone rings and it's his boss. And his boss says, uh, I need you to come over to my office. And he says, okay. And he goes over there going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm through. They're going to fire me. Yep. And he sits down with his office. And he says, first of all, I wish I could think of the name of his boss, but he, he says, uh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, I, I lost my temper, but it was just wrong what he did to me. You know, he just wants to monopolize my time, but I'm giving him so much time, and he shouldn't have done that, And but I'm really sorry I did that in front of you, and, and I understand you're going to have to fire me, and it's okay. And his boss says, well, actually, that's not why I called you over. I called you over to see if you'd be willing to continue working with Irwin. Hmm. He said, what? And he says, Erwin wants you to stay. He said, from that day forward, Erwin Allen treated him like a son. Wow. You know, and when he left to go to Star Trek, Erwin Allen came over and said, what can we do to get you to stay? You know, I'll put pressure on the studio. I'll get you a raise. I'll get you whatever you want. I don't want you to go. And he said, I got to go. I got to go. They're offering me all Desi Lu's production, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Lucy. It's a great step for me. I got to do it. And Irwin said, okay. And every time they would run into each other after that, Irwin said, well, are you ready to come back and work for me? He didn't hold a grudge or anything. So what Irwin was doing is he was just seeing how far he could push the guy to try to get his 100% time for Irwin's shows. But when Joe stood up to him and did it in a way that few producers would allow to happen, Irwin gained immense respect for him and treated him like a son from that day forward. And that, that alone tells you so much about Irwin Allen. It is. It's very interesting. Well, it kind of feeds into what I was going to ask you. You really get a sense from reading these books about how both Gene and Irwin dealt with their subordinates or coworkers or what have you. They both tend to be pretty hard taskmasters if you read the yeah. book. I mean, it's, Gene was very hard on writers, I think, and I don't know yeah. about the rest of the staff, but you think that was something they had in common, or, or were there other differences? Absolutely. Well, it's like that little portion you read from the book, and I, I said it would it, it would have to take a madman, and I think in the next paragraph uh, I say, or uh, a very ambitious, driven person. And they both were ambitious and driven. But, you know, that's what you got to be, Lane. you got you got to be that to be a producer. You can't be a producer in this town. You can't be a showrunner in this town without the conviction that you're right and that you can get the job done and that and to be willing to do anything you have to do to get that job done. And by the way, uh, Gene was yes, Gene was very tough on his writers, but he was always polite. 
Sure. You know, he, he never he never uh, shouted at anybody or treated them disrespectfully. He was tough on them that he would make them do extra rewrites. Yes. They were used to the fact that uh, the Writers Guild says you have to do one draft of a story and two drafts of the script and you're done. You get your pay. And if they want to make any additional changes, they can do it. But you've done your job. You earned your money. You can go. He would keep the writers in there as long as possible, doing as many drafts as possible, because he just wanted to make those scripts perfect. Mm-hmm. And and so it would say, well, come on, I need you to do another draft. You didn't quite get the voices right. And these poor writers, word got around town real quick, don't write for Star Trek, because you're going to spend the next three months of your life trying to do a one-hour script. You're going to do mm-hmm. 20 drafts of this script when you need to get on and, and be working for other shows and making more money. Uh, so Irwin was, people loved working for Irwin, the writers did. Because they would come in, and he gave them free reign. You know, just don't don't upset the network. Don't do anything the network's going to be upset about, but be as imaginative as you want. Gene would make all, all the scripts would go to scientists. You know, people at NASA and the RAND Corporation and so forth would read the scripts. And Gene's statement was, I'm not asking that everything in my show be probable, but I want it all to be possible. And so he would get scientific feedback on all the scripts and then make the writers rewrite the scripts because the scientist says, well, you can't quite do it that way. That never happened on Lost in Space or Voice Smile on the Sea. On those shows, if it was fun, if it was entertaining, Irwin was fine with it. And, and he didn't send it to any scientist to read. He didn't even care that how do we explain how the aliens can do this? Because Irwin's idea, his feeling was, well, they're another race, and they're an advanced race, and we don't have to explain how they pop in and pop out. And we don't have to explain why they wear top hats. They wear top <laughs> hats because they've been monitoring uh, American TV uh, from 200 years earlier, or so 100 years earlier, that's been getting out to their planet, and they kind of like that. And they, they decide to adopt it into their fashion. And it's all reasonable explanations, you know? I mean, try look, look at us today as a society and try to explain 90% of what's going on today. Exactly. Try to explain why people, uh, where, where gang, gang members wear pants that are so baggy that they fall down around their ankles every time they try to run from the police. That doesn't make sense. If you're going to be running from the police, wear tight pants that aren't going to fall down and trip you. You know, there's so many things about our society where that doesn't make sense. I just use one weird visual aspect of it, but you, you know what I mean. There's so many things that you can look at about our society and the music that's popular and things of that nature and say, what's this about? Or why is television the way it is? Or why are politics the way they are? And it doesn't make sense, but it's just what happens. People rarely make sense. And so Irwin's feeling was aliens don't have to make sense either. It's just the way they dress. It's the way they choose to dress this year. It's their fashion statement, and they pop in and pop out, and why does this, uh, this shuttle that goes up to the asteroid that uh, the thief of outer space live on look like this old, um, uh, what do they call those things that they carry people around in and, and back in the old days of Egypt? A sedan, uh, a sedan, chair. A sedan. Yeah, why does it look like a sedan from that era? And it's because that's what they want it to look like. And how come it has open windows? Well, it has a force field around outside of those windows that keeps the atmosphere in. We don't need to explain all this. Now, in Star Trek, they would. Spock would be sitting there going, hmm, interesting. No windows. There must be a force field outside of this, Captain, that keeps the breathable atmosphere within it. And so Roddenberry would put that in there because the scientists were saying to put that in there. Irwin's attitude was, we don't have to say any of this. It, it just is. It, it, it is what it is, and they've figured out how to make it what it is, and they're, they're capable of this type of flight. 
We don't have to explain how they, what, what kind of fuel they use. So you could see the argument on both sides. Neither was wrong. There's a lot of Star Trek fans who don't like Lost in Space, and there's a lot of Lost in Space fans who don't like Star Trek. I love them both. And I, I think there's room in this world for both types of shows and both types of approach to entertainment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. Both of them, they were both tremendous workaholics. I mean, just talking about the time that uh, Gene was spending writing memos to writers and the network and everything else was amazing to me. And, and Irwin's a workaholic as well. Of course, he's got three TV shows on the air, like you said, by the time that uh, Star Trek premieres. But yeah. Irwin seemed to have very little personal life. At least that's what I was picking up on. But Gene had a very, shall we say, colorful personal life, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gene liked the ladies, and he was married, and he had kids. Uh, Irwin never got married. Well, he did finally with Sheila, with Sheila. years, years later. Uh, but Sheila Matthews, yeah. And uh, But he never had any kids because he was a kid. I mean, and this was something that um, I think Lou Hunter of ABC told me this line. Uh, it could have been Joe Diagosta, somebody. It could have been Al Gal. But one of, one of them said that Irwin's least favorite day of the week was Friday. His favorite day of the week was Monday. Well, that's the opposite of most people in the working world. You know, they hate Mondays. Oh, God, i got to start another. The weekend's over already. And, and yet they love Fridays because tomorrow the weekend starts. Irwin was the opposite. He hated Fridays and he loved Mondays. So what he would do, because work was his entire life. He wanted to work seven days a week, every minute he was awake. Mm -hmm. And so he would create crisis. And that's what they all told me. They said every Saturday morning, there would be a crisis that would come up and we'd get a phone call from Irwin and we had to all go over to his house to work out some problem. So he would make Saturdays and Sundays work days as well, but they would be at his house. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's that's the way he was, uh, where Gene wanted the weekends to get away from Star Trek. Right. Uh, so it's it's uh, two different personalities there. They were both workaholics, but Irwin was a workaholic in the extreme sense because that was that was it, it wasn't work. He was a playaholic. That to him that was playing. Interesting too, you know, if you think about it, you pull back a little bit and you see where where Irwin wound up going. He would try things, he would reinvent himself. I mean, he went from doing the TV shows to those big budget disaster movies in the uh, 70s and in so many ways like you said he set the stage for George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And Roddenberry tried different things, but he always kept coming back to Star Trek, didn't he? Mhm. Yeah. Well, first of all, he loved Star Trek. Uh, and it was his child, and he really fussed over his child, and he really protected his child, and he wasn't going to let it continue without him. Uh, but he would have been fine not doing Star Trek again. I, I mean, he just loved to write, and for, for Roddenberry, he loved to go into new areas, so he wanted to do different type things. And during the 1970s, uh, all of his TV pilots all kind of felt a little like Star Trek in one way or another, and uh, Quester kind of felt like Mr. Spock. Uh, you know, it was an android on mm-hmm. uh, on Earth to protect man from himself, and so they actually were thinking of casting Leonard Nimoy in that role. And um, Genesis Two and Planet Earth, uh, the Pax team kind of felt like an Enterprise uh, landing party, and the shuttle kind of felt like the underground shuttle felt like it was kind of the Enterprise in a way, zipping us from one planet to another. It's all Earth, but it's all these fragmented sections of Earth with different cultures, right. kind of like visiting different planets. And uh, the reason, it wasn't that Gene was running out of ideas, it was that everybody wanted Star Trek back. 
NBC tried to get it back on the network two years after they canceled it, and Paramount wouldn't give it to them, as we learn in my new book series, which covers the 1970s, because they were making so much money off of the syndicated package at that point, and it was on more stations than any of the networks even had. And they were afraid if they put Star Trek back into production, it would... Uh, the, the bottom would drop out of the syndication package, which is silly, but that's what they were worried about. Mm. And so they, they turned NBC's offer away to come back. And the other thing is they said, well, we need if we're going to come back, you have to give us a full season commitment because if we're going to rebuild the ship, because we destroyed the sets and we, we donated the 12-foot model of the Enterprise to the Smithsonian Institute, and so we got to rebuild all this stuff. And if we're going to do that, we're not going to do that for a a 13-episode commitment. you got to give us a full-season commitment or we're not coming back. So those were the two things that kept Star Trek from getting back on TV because NBC wanted it almost immediately after canceling it. And the other two networks wanted it because the reruns are beating the new network shows. Right. They're going head-to-head against the network shows and they're winning the time slots. And so ABC and CBS wanted Star Trek too. Well, Paramount wouldn't give it to them. So uh, not without a full-year commitment and a big, big budget. So then they would come to Roddenberry and they would say, well, give us something like Star Trek. And so he would come up with these concepts that seemed like they spun out of Star Trek. And it wasn't accidental. It was deliberate because they were asking him to do that. And they even named one of his pilot films Strange New World. Well, that's the opening narration of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. These are the five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to go, you know, where no man has gone before. And so an ABC executive came up with that title and he sent Roddenberry a memo saying, hey, what do you think of this nifty title we just came up for your new pilot, Strange New World? It, they were <laughs> deliberately trying to get the Star Trek audience. Right. Well, Irwin, you know, he would have been fine doing a more big screen voice on the seas and lost in spaces, and he tried to get those going. And man, is he smiling now, wherever he is, with uh, Netflix new Lost in Space series with a $10 million per episode budget. Absolutely. And very faithful, very faithful to the first five, six, seven episodes of the original Lost in Space, which was his original intent for that show. It's very faithful to the tone of those episodes. Absolutely. And you're right. Irwin's smiling somewhere. Is there any evidence from the records that Irwin was interested in what Gene was doing or vice versa? Yes. I was surprised. I really was. You know, because Gene didn't keep any files on Lost in Space, but Irwin kept files on Star Trek. Now, Gene was monitoring Lost in Space, no question about it. And he hired a bunch of Lost in Space writers and a lot of Lost in Space composers and a lot of Lost in Space guest stars. Which makes sense in that area because Joe D'Agosta probably put them in Lost in Space first and then brought them over to Star Trek. But he was bringing over the musicians and he was bringing over the writers and, and so forth. You know, he didn't have a problem with Lost in Space at all. A lot of fans have made up a story that he did. And he didn't. Um, it kind of comes from a few statements he made in his life in front of convention audiences or college campus audiences where, you know, well, we're not doing silly stuff like Lost in Space or, you know, all that. But you got to understand, Gene liked to promote himself and he liked to promote Star Trek. So, you know, he's going to say what's going to get an applause from the audience and he's going to say what's going to make the network say, well, we need to go to Gene Roddenberry and not Irwin Allen. Right. You know, so he's, he's competing. He knows that that is a competitor, but they had immense respect for each other. If it wasn't for Irwin Allen, there wouldn't have been a Star Trek. Because even though they started it from that little passage that you read, yes, they started within weeks of one another. That first Star Trek pilot didn't sell. 
The so cage, then they had yeah. to make a se- yeah they had to make a second pilot where no man has gone before. So the first one was made in '64, not too long after Irwin Allen was launching Voice Upon the Sea. The second one, where no man has gone before, filmed within weeks of the Lost in Space pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, so at two different studios within a 20 minute drive of each other, you've got the second pilot for Star Trek filming and you got the pilot for Lost in Space filming. Amazing. And, yeah. Uh, and, but it was the fact that Voice Upon the Sea was winning its time slot on ABC and Lost in Space was winning its time slot on CBS and giving NBC a bloody nose on both of those nights that got NBC to finally say, we got to get this Star Trek on the air. We got to get one of these too. But they would have loved to have had an Irwin Allen show. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. what about Irwin? What, he was keeping a file on Star yeah. Trek? About, what was his attitude? <laughs> a rather thick file on Star Trek. He kept all the ratings. You know, uh-huh. he, he would keep the... And, and here's the remarkable thing about that, is, you know, back in those days, you weren't supposed to keep the ratings. The producers really weren't even supposed to be given copies of them. The networks licensed the ratings from A.C. Nielsen and from Arbitron. And at the bottom of each ratings report, in big, bold letters, it said, this is the property, and I'm going to just quote Nielsen. So this is the property of AC Nielsen Media Service, not to be copied, and to be it's on loan to you to be returned to AC Nielsen. Mm. So NBC would pay this big price to get the, the ratings report of all the shows for that week and how they stack up against each other and by every 15-minute increment. And uh, and they could show it to their sponsors, but they weren't supposed to photocopy of it. And, mm. they, and they didn't have a problem with them showing it to the producers or anybody, but they weren't supposed to release it to the press. On those rare occasions when Variety or Broadcasting Magazine printed ratings reports, they got them from Nielsen or Arbitron, and they paid for them. Uh, they weren't supposed to photocopy them. They weren't supposed to uh, let those copies get out in any way. They were supposed to use them to show to their clients that, hey, look at the rating we're getting. We want to get more money from you. And then they, they were supposed to return them to Nielsen. So Star Trek has very few ratings reports in its files. There were a couple that got in there, and that's about it. Mm. So we licensed the ratings from AC Nielsen for every episode to find out that Star Trek actually was doing much better numbers than we'd ever been told, quite often winning its time slot. Yeah. Uh, but Irwin has all the ratings reports in there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not the AC Nielsen reports. He had somebody retype them and break them into all kinds of different categories. And he wow. would even have a report that put down what Star Trek did that week compared to what Lost in Space did and Voice of the Sea did, you know, even though they were on different nights. He would have all that information in his files because he knew, I'm in a race against you, and I want to know everything that's going on. So he was breaking the rules in retyping this information and keeping it in his files. Mm. Uh, and you never wanted to show any of this to the cast because if the cast knew that they, the show was doing as well as it was doing, what are they going to do? They're going to ask for raises. What would Roddenberry <laughs> have done if he knew all this stuff? He would have been even more difficult with the network. Exactly. But Irwin had it all. He got His spies got him all these reports. He retyped them. He kept them. He kept every piece of fan mail that came in that made reference to Star Trek. He kept every article that was in the newspapers. He had a clipping service that would send him articles on Star Trek, and especially if it was comparing Star Trek against Lost in Space or one of his other shows, but particularly Lost in Space because those were the two that were out there in outer space. Right. And he just kept all this stuff because he wanted to know what the competitor was doing and how they were doing. And he would circle the ratings whenever he, uh, Lost in Space did better that week than Star Trek. He would circle it. 
in red ink. Look mm. at there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we don't have these big, important, haughty dog themes, but we beat them by three points, you know, and uh, so it, it was, um, he was very competitive and he was very aware of everything about Star Trek and jealous in some ways because he's on Lost of Space is on from 7.30 to 8.30. Voice of Bob C's on from 7 to 8 on Sunday nights and Star Trek's on after uh, the family hour ends. So he can't do the type of stories they're doing. Not that he necessarily would have wanted to anyway because as I said, he was a kid at heart. Right. But, but he didn't have the freedom to do a lot of the stories Star Trek was doing. So, you know, he, he would be bothered by it. What I, something I found very interesting that kind of comes out of this question too, is that he went wild during season two because they were up against Batman and Batman was just this wild comic book, pop culture, color stuff. And yeah. And, and for the first time, the only time in its three year run, uh, Lost in Space wasn't winning its time slot. It was coming in number two for a little while there against Batman. So uh, he amped it up. He said, we're going to fight fire with fire. We're going to hit them back with everything they're hitting us with. Mm. Well, then Batman fell off in the ratings. And so for the third season of Lost in Space, Irwin started easing it back towards more serious science fiction. He'd have some funny camp episodes in there, but he would do episodes like the Antimatter Man, which right. is pretty dark, which is more Star Trekky, you know? And uh, sure. so he was kind of steering it back towards the original concept. And if there had been a fourth season, which there was supposed to be, and they were writing scripts for it and everything, it would have been even more back towards the direction of the original intent of the show. You had a line in that preface also where you said, you know, Erwin Allen would never garner the respect awarded to Gene Roddenberry, but I'm really struck by how similar they were in so many ways. The yeah. drive, the ambition, may I say the ego to a certain extent, and then also the competitiveness. And you know, what's very interesting, both passed away in, in 1991. Gene was 70 and Erwin was 75, both too young, if you ask me. I know you mentioned you interviewed with Gene and, you know, you talked to him about doing these books. Did you ever get a chance to meet Erwin Allen? No, no, I never did, and I, and I wish I had. Uh, Mike Clark did, and he he was the guy who kind of was my technical consultant on the Lost of Space book. So he sure. had met Irwin and interviewed Irwin for Starlog magazine. And of course, Kevin Burns uh, knew Irwin and knew his wife Sheila Matthews very well, and that's why he's now the the caretaker, the shepherd of the all of Irwin's properties. And Lost of Space is his favorite of all of them. And um, and John Jashney, who uh, runs uh, ran Legendary Pictures for quite a while, uh, and is they're both executive producers on the new Lost of Space. They love Lost of Space. I mean, that mm. is their all time favorite right. show. They were latchkey kids, and that was their adopted family, taking them where they wanted to go, into outer space and, and everything. So uh, I never did meet him, but I feel like I've met him because I've been through all of his personal papers. So I, I, I've heard him talk so much. Right. Well, it's interesting. There's very little in the way of interviews with him. And Mike Clark's one of the few people that got to interview him, you know, for Starlog. So it's kind of interesting. I do feel like you get to know them based on reading your books. And both of them just such remarkable characters. And we have this whole genre now, the science fiction fantasy genre. And we have these two guys really to thank for the fact that it's so huge today. They were pioneers. Totally. And Rod Sterling. Uh, but Rod Serling really didn't do science fiction. I mean, Twilight Zone was in its own strange little place that occasionally did science fiction. Uh, Joseph Stefano and, uh, and so forth out of uh, Outer Limits, the first mm -hmm. Outer Limits. But mostly Irwin Allen and Gene Roddenberry because their shows weren't anthologies. They were the ones that created this family of characters. 
that we could visit with each week and could take us to these crazy places. And I would like, you know, I hope if anything comes out of my books on loss of space and voice spondency and when the second one comes out at the end of the year, uh, I, I would like to see that Irwin starts getting more respect because he was a pioneering producer and uh, director uh, and writer. He opened the door for Star Trek, and then Star Trek then opened the door for a lot of the stuff that came afterwards. And there wouldn't have been a Star Wars if there hadn't been a Lost in Space and a Star Trek. You know, it's like those kids watching those shows grew up to make the stuff that we're seeing now. So these two guys, they were the ones that kicked those doors open because science fiction was not that popular. Uh, as kids, we all loved it, but it didn't bring in a mass audience. Right. Uh, for television, Twilight Zone never did well in the ratings. Outer Limits never did well in the ratings. Irwin Allen was the first guy to put science fiction on television that was in the top 20 right. and winning its time slot. Those two guys really opened it up. I mean, I found out in my research that prior to Star Trek's amazing success in the 70s, the average printing of a successful science fiction book was about 40,000 copies. It was wow. about the best you could get. Uh, the average Star Trek book sold half a million. <laughs> Mm. All those ones by James Blish and and so forth had a printing of about half a million copies just by the 1970s. I haven't done my research beyond that period, but I'm getting the stats from Bantam and Ballantine books. And they're looking at half a million printings on on almost all these uh, Star Trek books when Highland and Bradbury and all these other people are lucky to see 40,000, 50,000 copies of their books sold. So these shows really brought science fiction to the forefront of pop culture and mass audience, unlike anything that had ever happened before. We're still experiencing it today. We've got Lost in Space back on Netflix, and CBS has got a new Star Trek series on TV, so they live on. That's right. That's beautiful. I just got a great letter yesterday. I got I got to write him a reply today. The producer of Star Trek Discovery just wrote me a letter. I got it yesterday, forwarded from my publisher, saying he just finished the new Star Trek book, and he he loved it, and he, he says, my books are head and shoulders above anything else that's ever been written on Star Trek, and da-da-da. So yeah. <laughs> you, we, we all get letters from people who read them, and, and it always means so much to an author to know that somebody's read their book and likes it. But when you get one from the current producer of that show, and Kevin Burns being the executive producer of uh, and John Jasney of Lost in Space, and uh, for them to be so enthusiastic about the books I did on Lost in Space, that that means a lot. You know, us writers are insecure. We need we need a pat on the back now and then. And, uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's great that's to great. hear. But I love hearing from any fans. You know, when anybody writes me through Facebook, I always write back. And because uh, I, you know, the thing is, is like talking with you, Lane. It's, it's like you're talking to somebody who loves something that you love, right. and you're talking about the thing that you both love. What's more fun than that? Can't think of much more fun than that. (laughs) That's exactly right. Wow. Mark, this has been awesome. This has uh, exceeded my expectations as always. Great to do a deep dive into uh, both Erwin Allen and Gene Roddenberry. And if you really want to do the deep dive, guys, get out there and buy these books. I got to go back to Jacobs Brown and get my copy of the Star Trek in the 70s. And is there going to be a follow-on to that as well? Yeah, it's a two-book set. And I'm working on the second one right now. It's in first draft. I'm just going through it again, and then i got to work with the editor, and we got to plug in all the pictures, because sure. it covers the entire 1970s. So the one that's out now covers the first half of the decade, which includes the animated series and Gene Roddenberry's other pilots, which are all Star Trek connected, uh, because they were making them Star Trek connected, and the, the conventions and everything. And then the second half, just like a movie, it kind of builds up, 
and becomes even more interesting because that's when they finally get Star Trek back as the motion picture and right. almost as a TV series with the aborted series and so on. So you see everything that happened during that decade to uh, bring it about, uh, at which point Irwin is doing great on the big screen with Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure and all that kind of stuff. So his career is really taking fire. Gene Roddenberry's jealous because, you know, he, you know, he's trying so hard to get his career back in shape. And Irwin is one of the dominant, uh, actually the, the most successful producers of movies there for a few years during the 1970s. Amazing. Very interesting period. Fascinating. Gosh, it's great. And, and by the way, oh yes, yes, get them from Jacobs Brown because those come signed by the author and if you want them inscribed, they can be inscribed too. You don't get that if you go to Amazon. So it's jacobsbrownmediagroup.com or an, an easier way to find their website. And this may make a Lost of Space fans squirm a little bit, but they have another web address called These Are the Voyages Books. And that'll take you to the website as well. And that's a lot easier to remember. Well, we link to all of your links, uh, Jacobs Brown, your uh, Amazon author page, all those places on every episode of our podcast. Uh, Bless you. You know, I love your books. I love talking to you. And it was generous of you to come back on the show. And I, I hope we can talk you into coming back in the future. That ain't going to be tough. You <laughs> say, hey, let's, uh, I've been having a cup of coffee here while we've been chatting, and it's been a delightful hour. So, no, you want to do this again in six months? I'll be there. As a matter of fact, six months from now will be right around when uh, the concluding Voice of the Sea book comes out. Perfect, perfect. All right, well, I'm going to plow through the rest of the uh, Star Trek books and the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea book. I won't have anything... Uh... <laughs> anything else on my reading list for the next six months. So we'll do it again. And, and your dog was very uh, cooperative. Um, yeah. I, I warned Lane before we started, usually I lock my dog out in the yard uh, when I do an interview, but it's kind of drizzly up here today. So I've let him stay in the house with me. He hasn't barked once. No. So I said, if he barks, we're, you know, his name's not Astro, but we're going to call him Astro. And uh, mm-hmm. like that dog, they almost had in, in uh, lost of space. <laughs> One of our dogs is missing episode, right, right. which if you read the books, you find out why that dog didn't come back because it was supposed to stay. It was going to be a recurring member of the cast from that point on because Irwin, again, was trying to do Swiss Family Robinson. He had the bloop. They had the ostriches. Those didn't work out. Billy Mummy was terrified of them. So they were, said, hey, let's have a dog in the show. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when you have a dog in the show, filming slows down. Time is money. That didn't work, but but my Astro has been a good boy so far. He hasn't barked once. Yeah, he needs a treat. He needs a treat. <laughs> he will. <laughs> Lane, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a great time, Mark, and uh, we will talk again soon. Okay, bye-bye. I'm delighted we had a chance to speak again with author Mark Cushman. Check out his books and order them from Jacobs Brown Media to get your own autographed copies. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. 
Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.